0: your thumb you will notice that it seems to have just two sections while your fingers have three Um, um,
1: from brick in downtown Brooklyn I'm Mackenzie Bagan and this is glitter and doom What you're hearing right now is a piece called The Language of Chance Number One by Brooklyn based artist Maria Chavez. It's a real treat when we get to feature an artist on Glitter and Doom who works with sound because it is easier for me. Not to say that I don't love having guests on the show who are writers or visual artists, but it means I have to paint a picture with my words, and I'm just gonna end up telling you to Google their art anyway. But Maria
0: works with sound. My name is Maria Chavez, she, her. Uh, I am known as a sound artist, abstract turntablist, and DJ. And I'm based here in New York City, in Brooklyn. So I guess from most accessible,
1: or maybe the thing that people would understand the most to least would be DJ, like most people get that. Sound artist, maybe people have heard of sound artists. But then abstract turntablist, I think maybe some people may not know what that is. So what does your work look like and sound like?
0: Originally, I would sit down uh, with one turntable and one DJ mixer, and I would have a collection of broken needles from perfect to broken, totally broken off, and a collection of broken to perfect records that I considered my uh, sonic vocabulary, and I considered my needles, my pencils of sound. And I combined the two to improvise sound pieces that aren't necessarily musical or directed with the idea of music. So let's hear what that
1: sounds like. Maria starts with one record on her turntable. In this case, it's a test tone record that a repairman might use to calibrate your hi-fi.
0: 500.
1: And now... She just dropped a second record that has been broken roughly in half on top of the first record. So picture them stacked like pancakes, except the top pancake has been partially eaten. And now we'll hear her add a third
0: record.
1: And Maria will continue like that, layering records to build sonic works that are governed by chance. No two performances will ever be the same. With one hand, she moves the needle or uses her fingertips to slow or stop or tap the records as they spin. And with the other, she adjusts the sliders on her mixer. Her movements are familiar to anyone who's watched a DJ at a club. But the sounds coming out of her speakers are definitely not club music.
0: As my turntables practice has evolved over time, now my latest setup is four turntables for double, rake double needles, which are these needles that were invented by uh, this guy, Randall Sandin Jr., based out of Dallas. Um, he put two needles on one head, so they read two different parts of a record at the same time. And you can split it on your DJ mixer. And I have four of those on the four turntables. So it's eight needles, two needles each turntable on four turntables. And uh, the whole idea is not necessarily a performance in music practice. It's actually a sculpture session where everyone that is sitting down is watching a a literal sculpture being made because it's this sharp chisel, which is the needle, and the material that the chisel is subtracting from, which is the PVC or the vinyl, the record itself, what it's made of. Um, As the needle interacts with the material, it is subtracting, which is the literal fine art definition of sculpture. So I actually don't see my work in musical terms at all. I see it all in the terms of earth topography and um, sculpture terms. My material is so small that the surface area and the place that I choose to subtract is, is impossible for everyone to see at the same time. So the only way you can witness it is by hearing it. So the sessions aren't really about Having a finalized idea of a piece, it's really more like you are hearing the sculpture session as it's being chiseled away. Do you have a sense of like how many times
1: you need to play a record before it degrades completely? I mean, I'm sure that it's like microns are being worn away each time you play it. But like how long before a record is done?
0: It really depends on the where I am with my own um, affinities towards a certain sonic vocabulary. You know, like there was one year where I was obsessed with bird noises for ages. <laughs> so I was just getting a bunch of bird records and, and and playing with those. And by the end of that year of working with that, they were pretty annihilated. So now where, when you play the record, the needle can't stay on one groove because it's been so chiseled at that all it can do is just glide across or catch whatever groove is available for it to read.
1: Well, what does a bird call that's been degraded that much even sound like?
0: It's very tiny squeaks. It's almost like they're screaming from underground. For me, I was like, whoa, it sounds like I just buried a bunch of birds.
1: Whoa, dark, Maria. But actually, it turns out there are birds who live underground. At least that's what Glitter and Doom's producer and resident bird nerd, Isabel Alcantara, says. Isabel, what's your favorite bird? I'm gonna go ahead and say the Rufus Hummingbird, Mackenzie. Cool. Okay, so puffins build burrows that are as deep as the length of a human arm, and there's a species of owl called the burrowing owl. It has yellow eyes. And it sort of has the body type of Mr. Peanut with this rounded body perched on these really long skinny legs that it uses to dig. So what do burrowing owls sound like when they're underground? Probably not a lot. Birds sing and call out for a wide variety of reasons. To signal where food is, to let buddies know that there's a predator nearby, or to try to get laid. Here's what the burrowing owl sounds like when it's above ground. However, once ground-dwelling birds are inside their burrows, they're not making a ton of noise. The whole point is to hide from predators, not be like, hey guys, I'm over here in this hole with my succulent little burrowing owl hatchlings. But if owls don't make noise when they're underground, and stay with me, because this is a bit of a leap. They were very much a part of the Underground Railroad.
0: Hood owl calling in the ghosted air,
1: five times calling to the haunts in the air, shadow of a face in the scary leaves, shadow of a voice in the talking leaves. That is poet Robert Hayden's Renegade, Renegade, about the Underground Railroad and specifically about Harriet Tubman's use of owl calls. Tubman grew up in Maryland, in an area with wetlands, swamps, and forests. To be an effective Underground Railroad conductor, she called on her deep knowledge of the region's environment and wildlife to communicate, navigate, and survive. For example, we know that she used the call of an owl to signal to freedom seekers whether the coast was or wasn't clear. Isabel, what type of owl call would Harriet Tubman have used? Based on the region, folks think this is probably the barred owl. It hoots in about eight syllables, and it sounds like, and I quote, Who cooks for you? Who cooks for you?
0: Other records I like to use are records that are Considered obsolete, so um, test tone records are were records of different sine wave tones that um, phonograph repairmen would use when they would go to your house and fix your phono player, record player, hi-fi setup. So it was a very technical record that was simply there to correct broken phonographs and record players, or, or like records for radio for sound effects that you know people don't use sound effects anymore in that way it's all digital so I use this one hand analysis record Uh, this woman is teaching you how to read the lines of your palm so when I first play the record it's I love playing it because the first thing that she says is now look at the right part of your palm and then everyone opens their hands and they look at their palms (laughs) and it feels like this unintentional like abstract dance choreographed thing where suddenly everyone in the audience is looking at their palms trying to follow what this woman is saying in this record. Interesting, obsolete records that don't have a home anymore can find a home with me.
1: Maria has a piece in the show that's up at Brick right now called Latinx Abstract. It's curated by my colleague Elizabeth Ferrer and it features the work of 10 contemporary abstract artists who are also Latin American. These artists, who range in age from 32 to 83, have often been overlooked because the capital A art world doesn't know where to put them. On the one hand, they're Latinx, but they're not painting realist murals about the dignity of migrant farm workers or representational canvases that depict a pre-Columbian woman weaving a basket. So when curators put together a group show of Latinx artists, abstract work is often deemed not ethnic enough. Like, white people are coming to the show expecting to feel like they're on a carnival cruise to Cancun, so any artists who aren't making art that is explicitly about their cultural identity often get passed over. Okay, so they don't make it into the canon of Latinx artists, so maybe you're thinking they make it into the abstract art group show. Well, they don't because of racism. Like, take a moment to think of all the abstract artists you can name. My guy. White guy, white guy. White guy. Yeah, they're all white guys. (laughs) Gonna tell you right now, that doesn't mean that only white guys were making abstract art. They're just the only ones who got famous. This is a simplification, of course. Several of the artists featured in Latinx Abstract have pieces in the permanent collections of major museums. But for the most part, their art has been undervalued
0: because they work with abstraction. The art world can only see black POC and non-black artists as artists that make work about their traumas and not participate in just general contemporary art discourse it's like how dare these spanish speaking painters paint something that isn't about like the mountains that they live by or you know i feel like i have a right to participate in contemporary art discourse more so than just making work about being Peruvian or being a woman you know like that's not what inspires my work my work is inspired by a conceptual practice why can't I like propose new terms to be used for the entirety of the existence of sound art like why why can't these painters be considered abstract painters alongside the 60s and 70s abstract painters in uh, America like what is that that's telling us we can't and it's like oh right it's white supremacy we are not supposed to outshine and we are not supposed to try to be more conceptual and creative than our white counterparts because if we do then we just further prove that they are not as talented as they've set up this structure to be in order to support them i can only imagine how the older painters what they've had to deal with over the past decades, like, say, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, like, there's just so much objectification, when even when it comes to our last names. And so I think a, a painting show like this is, is so important for the public to be aware that this movement was not just happening in Europe, it was happening all over the world. And for these paintings to finally be seen in this kind of a environment like brick, which is so beautiful, it, it feels like it's, It should have happened sooner, but at least it's happening now.
1: Take the work of Fanny Sanin, who is 83, has a career that spans six decades and was born in Colombia. Sanin has two canvases in the show, as well as eight studies for paintings made with colored pencil and markers. She's a visual artist, so here's the part of the show where I paint a picture with my words, but ultimately tell you just to pop her name into Google because I am not a professional art historian. That's Fanny, S-A-N-I-N. Her canvases feature hard-edged geometric color fields, often with strong vertical and horizontal lines, boxes and grids and stripes, sometimes intersected by diagonal lines that form triangles and parallelograms. Her use of color is so good. Like, it's abstraction, so what we're dealing with in her canvases is basically shapes and color. So I can't tell you like, oh, she's such an amazing artist because the way she paints the sunlight hitting that picture is so lifelike. But the way she uses color, the palette she picks, and how she places fields of color in relation to one another is masterful. Like when I get super rich off bitcoins or whatever, I want each room in my mansion to have a color scheme based on one of her paintings. You could maybe compare her work to that of Joseph Albers, Frank Stella, and Ellsworth Kelly. Stella, in particular, is almost exactly her contemporary. He was born in 1936, and Sanine was born in 1938. Why haven't you heard of her? I can think of a couple reasons. But Google her work, and tell me what you think. Maria's piece in the show is called Staggered Shifts. It's a site-specific audio installation designed for the stoop at the Brick House, which, if you haven't been, is a big concrete staircase that runs the length of the gallery. It's where, in pre-COVID times, the teens from the local high school would come to congregate and flirt. Staggered Shifts is a two-channel installation,
0: so there are two speakers, one on the left and one on the right. One speaker will emit Spanish, the other will emit English. So when you sit in the middle, you'll get both languages. And uh, it'll all be various descriptions of various paintings that you are looking at from the stoop into the gallery. And I wanted to try to create a piece that would mimic what an old art opening would have sounded like if we were allowed to have an art opening, which would have been a lot of people talking about different things at the same time in a space. So it's not like you'll actually know which paintings each person is going to talk about, um, but you'll hear these descriptions that hopefully will make you look at the entirety of the actual painting exhibition in a different way. Um, You're only going to be able to hear like little snippets of people's parts of their sentences so
1: how did you find your way to this work? What, were you starting from a place of DJing and musicianship or did you come to it through a more artistic practice or are you really into game theory or what was your entry point?
0: That's such a funny question to ask me right now because it's been such a tumultuous last few years that have really opened my eyes to a lot of realities of my choices in life. <laughs> so, um and I'm not one to to just like repeat the same thing over and over again because I it just doesn't feel genuine so I I just want to apologize in advance for being so honest when I was 16 I saw my first DJ and as soon as I I saw them play I mean I was sitting on the subwoofer next to them like the entire night just like staring at them watching what they were doing I was just completely enchanted by it and after that I, I really believed that was my calling I was I found it I figured out what I'm I was I'm meant to do this is it I was DJing parties by the time I was 17 because I caught on so fast and I also, my mom was out of town a lot and I had a nanny who let me do whatever I wanted so I could actually go to these parties a little bit more than other kids in high school could. The DJ world in the late 90s, early 2000s was really in a in a weird phase, you know, they had just gotten through this 90s rave electronic music explosion that somehow sort of dwindled and. As I was starting to shift in the more abstract way of like starting to play with my needle a little more rather than just letting it do what it's supposed to do, that really hit a nerve, a negative nerve with the scene. And, and they, they rejected it and didn't want me to do it. So I found myself in a place where I was seeking out a safe place. To try these experiments, and luckily, that's when I met um, David Dove, who was the director of the Pauline Oliveros Foundation. And through Dave, I met Pauline Oliveros, who gave me the understanding that this could be some kind of a career. If, if it was something that I wanted, I completely quit DJing and just focused solely on the turntables and stuff, which which then evolved into more art installation. Uh, it'll almost be 20 years. I think in another two years, that I've been doing this um, and realizing that. What I saw when I was 16 at this rave wasn't an artistic calling, it was a trauma response to growing up in a very um, psychologically abusive environment. I didn't really understand that at the time what I was looking for was safety. I was looking to be safe and I was looking to be hurt. And so seeing a DJ up there, I saw someone that was safe, everybody was listening to him. and So I mistook this trauma response for an artistic calling, and now I'm in this really funny position (laughs) where I'm actually part of history now. And so now this next phase of my work is, is starting to uncover who I am without the need to be heard and who am I without the need to be safe. I was never really meant to be an artist had I been more supported, uh, in, in safe spaces that allowed me to focus on other subjects in school um, as a child and as a teenager, I might have actually been able to figure out what I was really meant to be. My life's work has actually not been an artistic pursuit, but a pursuit in safety. Mm. But I just feel guilty that when I have these interviews now, it's it, I can't give this kind of, you know, gushy, artistic story about how much I love art. (laughs) You know, you always want to provide a good story for some people. But unfortunately, um, I'm not really good at at fibbing. So I
1: don't I don't need your fibs. I would much rather your honesty. And also, that's such a hard process to rewrite a narrative for yourself, especially one that You know, you've not only told people who are interviewing you, but probably yourself about like, oh, this is the progression of my life. And this is how I ended up where I am today. And then to go back and be like, wait a second, like that may not be true. That's really difficult to rewrite that. Maria's mentor, Pauline Oliveros, was an experimental composer. She died in 2016 at the age of 84. And she was someone I didn't know about, but I am so glad I do now. Photos of her show a butch lesbian often pictured with her accordion, and she almost always has this look of intense concentration on her face. Like she's listening
0: really hard. My practice is to listen to everything all the time and remind myself when I am not listening.
1: That's from a TED Talk Oliveros gave in 2015 in which he talked about a concept she developed called deep listening.
0: The practice of deep listening, as it has developed, explores the difference between hearing and listening. The ear hears, the brain listens, the body senses vibrations. Listening is a lifetime practice that depends on accumulated experiences with sound.
1: Oliveras was just an absolute boss. She was making electronic music in the 50s and 60s using reel-to-reel recorders and tape. In 1970, she published an op-ed in the New York Times titled, And Don't Call Them Lady Composers. She was a teacher, mentoring students over the course of six decades. She was a black belt in karate. In a 2002 interview with the San Francisco Bay Guardian, Oliveras was asked, Do you feel part of a continuous lineage, and if so, who came before you? Her response? I feel a connection with the continuum, but I don't want to name names. They would be men, and I don't want to continue that patriarchal influence. Love that. One of her most famous works is a text called Sonic Meditations that she published in 1974. As an experimental composer, Oliveros wanted to blow open the idea of what musical notation could look like. She felt like traditional Western music education and notation were constricting and thwarted improvisation. How can you capture the music of crickets, birds, and machines using treble and bass clefs? The score of Sonic Meditations is entirely text-based, and it's broken into various... exercises? Songs? Here's the score for number nine, called The Greeting. Informed persons should begin the greeting at least half an hour or more before a scheduled meeting or program. After you are seated and comfortable, allow a tone to come into mind. Keep returning your attention to the same tone. Every time a person or persons enter the space, greet them by singing the tone, as you were greeted when you entered the space. Continue the meditation until all are present. Sonic meditation number one is called Teach Yourself to Fly here's what it says. Any number of persons sit in a circle facing the center. Illuminate the space with dim blue light. Begin by simply observing your breathing. Always be an observer. Gradually allow your breathing to become audible. Then gradually introduce your voice. Allow your vocal cords to vibrate in any mode which occurs naturally. Continue as long as possible naturally And until all others are quiet, always observing your own breath cycle. Here's what that sounds like this is the late music ensemble of Kent, England performing sonic meditation number one. Oliveros also invited nature and the natural world into her compositions. The shortest sonic meditation, number five, is called Native. It reads, take a walk at night. Walk so silently that the bottoms of your feet become ears. Number two is a variation on number one, teach yourself to fly, the one that you just heard. It says, search for a natural or artificial canyon, forest, or deserted municipal quad. Perform, Teach Yourself to Fly in this space. She also performed with her trio, the Deep Listening Band, in cisterns and caves. And when I asked Maria what was next for her and her art, I could see her building on Oliveros' legacy.
0: What's next is just going to be even more experimental than ever before. So I'm Making, uh, proposing installations for actual canyons in like natural parks and things like that with solar powered speakers where it's a sonic hike but what you're actually walking through is a, a recording of a glitch from a record that is actually stretched out 20 to 60 minutes long. It's like you're walking inside the glitch. So I'm now proposing that we actually create a nature walk in a canyon so that it looks like you're walking in a groove of a record. So I want to I want to really start to get more invested in the land art side of things, because I'm very much interested in rocks and mountains. And I want to get more adventurous now that I know that I can. And yeah, I just I just think it's it's a time to just get adventurous if I wasn't already. watch out. (laughs) Now I feel like I can do anything because I literally can and and people will let me and I have the access to do it and it's exciting and not very many women in my position, let alone from a Spanish-speaking country like Peru, would have this kind of access in New York City or even internationally. So the fact that I do have this is really invigorating.
1: Like the other artists featured in Latinx Abstract, Maria's career as an abstract sound artist has nothing to do with her identity as a Peruvian American woman, insofar as she's not making work about the Andes or racism or immigration. But it also has everything to do with her identity as a Peruvian American woman, because how could it not? In an interview that she did with The Creative Independent, Maria said, "'Writing is the only way for people to really take me seriously. I wouldn't even have a career if I wasn't writing.'" When I asked her about this, she told me that her first book of technique, chance procedures on turntable kind of came about by accident. She wanted to stop performing, but she had all this knowledge that she wanted to preserve, and the book became this really acclaimed piece of scholarship. Universities and other institutions acquired copies for their libraries, and all of a sudden, people were taking her seriously. She thinks that without that book, and the academic credibility it conferred, she would have continued to be dismissed by the art establishment. Too abstract to be grouped with Latinx artists, and too brown to be let into the club. Maria's piece, Staggered Shifts, as well as Fanny Sanin's work and the rest of the Latinx Abstract show, will be on display at Brick in downtown Brooklyn until May 2nd. Visit brickartsmedia.org for more information. You may have noticed that Glitter and Doom came to your feed on Wednesday instead of Thursday. Good eye! Glitter and Doom will now be airing every other Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Brick's chief curator, Elizabeth Ferrer, and a special thank you to Brick's senior vice president of community media, Tony Riddle, for lending us his voice. Don't forget to book a socially distant visit to Brick and take in the Latinx Abstract show on display till May 2nd. Check out brickartsmedia.org for more information.